Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Friday, January 26, 2024, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topsher with today's headlines. The United Automobile Workers Union endorses Biden. Denmark admits it's linked to civilian casualties in Libya. Ukraine gives contrasting statements on a Russian plane crash. A report accuses Pakistan of censoring the media. Over 40% of U.S. lawmakers are found to have faced threats in the last three years. Former Trump advisor Peter Navarro is sentenced to four months. A suspect is arrested over a South African fire that killed 77. Alabama prepares to carry out the first nitrogen execution in the U.S. The Amazon's record-breaking drought is linked to global warming. And the U.K. agrees to lend back the Asante monarch's crown jewels. In our top story, the United Automobile Workers Union endorses Biden. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, NBC, CNBC, CBS, and NPR Online News. U.S. Democratic President Joe Biden on Wednesday received the re-election endorsement of the United Automobile Workers, or the UAW, union on the last day of the UAW's National Conference in Washington, D.C. The UAW represents more than 400,000 workers. UAW President Sean Fain had said his union's 2024 endorsement needed to be earned, not freely given. On Wednesday, Fain said Biden earned it last September by becoming the first sitting U.S. president to ever walk the picket line with UAW members. The UAW also endorsed Biden in 2020. Fain also called Republican former President Donald Trump, who's the frontrunner of the 2024 GOP presidential nomination, a scab who doesn't support union workers. Biden reacted to the endorsement by saying he's honored and touting that he has kept his commitment to be the most pro-union president ever. Support from blue-collar workers, especially in swing states with high union populations, including Wisconsin and Michigan, could be crucial in the 2024 election. Biden often refers to his working-class upbringing in Scranton, Pennsylvania, but Trump has maintained a strong amount of blue-collar support. Biden's speech was briefly interrupted by protesters calling for a ceasefire in Gaza, but the UAW crowd mostly voiced its support of the president in the remarks overall. On this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Melissa laid out the facts for us, and our first spin is the Democratic narrative from Washington Post. Endorsing Biden over Trump was an easy decision for the UAW, which follows in the path of several other unions that have pledged their support for the president earlier than usual this election cycle. While Biden comes from a working-class background and practices what he preaches to help blue-collar workers, Trump says he's pro-worker even though his presidency featured policies that weakened unions and their advocacy for working-class people. And here's the Republican narrative from Breitbart. It's absurd that at the same time the UAW is lamenting the damage done to its union in recent years, it also endorsed the president who's causing much of their pain. Biden opposes Trump's pro-U.S. tariffs and supports free trade agreements. If it wasn't for Biden's inflation and electric vehicle mandates, there never would have been a UAW strike. Trump will still get plenty of blue-collar support in 2024, even if the UAW is misguided. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives from the Metaculous Prediction community. There's a 50% chance that Trump would win a 2024 presidential election matchup with Biden, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. 
Looking forward to that electric car tax write-off. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> it's gonna be great. Yeah. Are do you, do you get one? Is that is that uh is is that currently you in place for you? You yeah. only get it the year you buy it, right? And it's okay, uh, so up to it. a certain amount. And no, I'm just gonna buy a new electric car every year. And that way, I can oh, save a little bit of money on my. That'll taxes. show them. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. There you go. That'll and then just throw them. your old electric electric car out in a pile like that. Yeah. That's... I'll just put <laughs> it in my yard. Yeah. Good idea. <laughs> Burn it. Denmark admits its role in a 2011 Libya NATO strike that killed 14 civilians. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Arab News, Air Wars, and The Guardian. Following an investigation by The Guardian, Danish news site Altinget, and civilian casualty watchdog Air Wars, Denmark has announced a probe into its Air Force's potential connection to NATO airstrikes on Libya in 2011 that caused the death of 14 civilians. In June 2011, 12 civilians, including five children, were killed during an airstrike on the city of Sermon. In September of the same year, a strike in Sirte killed a man and a pregnant woman. The strikes were part of a six-month-long, 10-country NATO mission called Operation Unified Protector. Extracts from a 2012 document requested by the media outlets show a Danish Defense Command informing NATO that at least two Danish F-16 aircrafts participated in a number of the specific attacks reported at the time by the New York Times, Human Rights Watch, and the UN's International Commission of Inquiry on Libya. The document claims that while there was no evidence or indication that Danish aircraft had caused such casualties, civilian death as a consequence of Denmark's participation cannot be ruled out. Prior to the release of documents from Denmark, none of the countries involved in the NATO operation had ever acknowledged their potential relation to civilian casualties. Responding to the investigation, Denmark's defense ministry said it will assess whether the documents in question indicate that there were ramifications of such magnitude worthy of an investigation at that time within the coalition or NATO framework. Thank you, Scott. We'll begin with an establishment critical narrative from Action on Armed Violence. Denmark's long-kept secret has kept the families of those who lost loved ones waiting over a decade for answers. Without any nation taking responsibility for its actions, Libya has been left in the dark about who killed innocent civilians. Countries and international organizations such as NATO are not immune to the law and must become more transparent and provide greater accountability for their behavior. Time magazine brings us the pro-establishment narrative. Although NATO operations in countries such as Libya and Syria were certainly controversial, the organization, now more than ever, remains a necessary tool for maintaining world peace. In the face of challenges to the West and the liberal international order from the likes of Russia and China, now is not the time to tear down this global defender of freedom. It's time to rebuild and maintain its presence and strength. And there's a nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community that says there's a 50% chance that NATO will have at least 32 member countries by December 31st, 2025. Zelensky's armed forces give contrasting statements on the Russian plane crash. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Ukranska Pravda, President Zelensky, and TASS. Following Wednesday's crash of a Russian military transport plane in the Belgorod region, believed to have killed all 65 Ukrainian prisoners of war alongside nine Russian cabin crew and security staff on board, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said it was necessary to establish all the facts 
and that Ukraine would insist on an international investigation. We need to establish all the exact facts, Zelensky said during his nightly address, as much as possible, given that the plane crash occurred on Russian territory, which is beyond our control. He added he has spoken with the commander-in-chief and the general staff about the use of the Air Force with the Defense Intelligence of Ukraine to clarify the situation about the prisoners of war and with the Security Service of Ukraine to investigate the circumstances of the plane going down. He further said the foreign minister was tasked with keeping international partners updated. Our state will insist on an international investigation. However, earlier in the day, Ukraine's general staff of the armed forces released a statement on the incident that appeared to contradict Zelensky. While it did not claim responsibility for the plane going down, it said that military transport planes such as the Il-76 aircraft are frequently used by Russia to transport weapons used in Ukraine. With this in mind, the statement read, The armed forces of Ukraine will continue to take measures to destroy means of delivery and control the airspace to eliminate the terrorist threat, including on the Belgorod-Kharkiv front. Meanwhile, Russia's defense ministry, which has blamed Ukraine for the plane going down, said on Thursday that it had recovered both black boxes from the crash site. According to preliminary data, both flight recorders are intact enough to be decoded. An emergency services source told the Russian news outlet TASS on Friday they will arrive in Moscow on a special flight for delivery to a defense ministry lab for decoding. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. Ukranska Pravda brings us the pro-Ukraine narrative. While Russia is predictably rushing to conclusions and is already using this event to toy with the feelings of Ukrainian society, the Ukrainian government is taking all the steps necessary to find out exactly what happened with the plane going down. Kyiv will demand an international investigation so that all facts can be established. And the pro-Russian narrative comes from TASS. While a Russian investigation to establish the facts is ongoing, Ukraine's armed forces have already indirectly suggested they are responsible for the plane going down, saying that it will continue to destroy future flights in the Belgorod region. This was a reprehensible crime. Kyiv is the primary suspect. And we have a statistics-based nerd narrative once again from Metaculus. They say there's a 30% chance that Ukraine will join the EU before 2030. Did you ever read Michael Crichton's novels in the 90s? I mean, I read Jurassic Park. I did read Jurassic Park, but I never read any of the other ones. Airframe was the first book that I read where I was like, oh, I am also learning about airplanes and black boxes and slats deploying. And uh, basically, it was like a detective book on... uh, like, why did this plane crash? And it kind of took you through these steps. Ah. So you got to learn about airplanes and, um, and, and detectivery at the same time. I think that's the term for it, detectivery. I'm sure it is, yeah. You, you learned plenty about planes you didn't learn about. Did not learn call. that much, yeah, yeah about detectivery or how to talk good. Now, how did you find field. yourself as a, a little girl reading this book, reading this not stereotypically little girl book? Um, my brother. Yep. Mm-hmm. That was my brother. I mean, Jurassic Park had come out, and I was a huge fan of the Spielberg oh, yeah. movie. Yeah. But then uh, m- then my brother kept reading the Michael Crichton ones and happened to have Andromeda Strain and uh, yep. an airframe on the table. And I was like, that looks interesting. Let me see what this is about. Good yeah, I like you. Jurassic Park. Yeah, you dove right in. And you, and you read Jurassic Park's pretty heavy book, actually. Pakistani media was instructed not to cover Khan's PTI party. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by Nikkei Asia, BBC News, Voice of America, Arab News, and Al Jazeera. An exclusive Al Jazeera report published on Thursday claims, citing multiple journalists associated with news organizations in Pakistan, that media has been instructed to effectively impose near-blanket censorship on coverage of former Prime Minister Imran Khan's Pakistan Tariq-e-Insaf, or PTI, ahead of the February 8th elections. This comes nearly a month after prominent media bodies in the country alleged growing censorship in the run-up to the national vote, such as bans on reporting political activities and court proceedings. Meanwhile, human rights groups and independent election observers have increasingly cast doubt over whether the upcoming parliamentary elections will be free, fair, or credible, amid allegations that Pakistan's powerful military has interfered with the process to crack down on PTI. As the PTI was holding a virtual rally last Saturday, Nationwide disruptions to social media platforms were reported. Though Islamabad argues that technical glitches were to blame, the timing has prompted rumors that the establishment is purposefully targeting Khan's party. Despite being sentenced to three years in jail and barred from contesting the elections, Khan, who was ousted from office in a no-confidence vote two years ago, continues to be a powerful force dividing the nation. His party, which was recently barred from using its cricket bat symbol, has resorted to artificial intelligence-generated audio simulating his voice to boost its campaign. Pakistan's Ministry of Information and Broadcasting, however, has denied the allegations of censorship, saying the media is at liberty to give coverage to all political parties, including Khan's party. Those are the facts. Here are the narrative spins, starting with Narrative A from First Post. With two weeks to go for the general elections, it's obvious that this vote will be anything but free and fair, as non-elected officials have singled out Imran Khan's PTI for systematic dismemberment. Such a manipulation of the election process can only aggravate the current political turmoil in Pakistan. Narrative B comes from Pakistan Today. At first, the opposition and international observers said that there would be no elections. Now they are claiming that the upcoming vote will be one of the most rigged elections ever based on false allegations of censorship. Actually, the media in Pakistan enjoys much more freedom of expression than many outlets in the West. And here's the nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 47% chance that Pakistan will experience a successful coup d'etat before 2040. A study finds that over 40% of U.S. state lawmakers self-censor due to threats. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Forbes, The Guardian, and Time. A new report released Thursday by the Brennan Center for Justice at the New York University School of Law found that over 40% of state lawmakers revealed having faced threats over the past three years, while up to 20% of local officeholders admitted the same over the past 18 months. According to the study, which surveyed 350 state legislators and over 1,350 local elected officials, Roughly one in ten state representatives had been threatened by someone with a weapon. As a result, many respondents expressed a disinclination to work on controversial policy issues, including gun rights and reproductive rights. Nearly 50% of local officials and more than 25% of state lawmakers. To interact with constituents on social media, 52% of local officeholders and 46% of state legislators. And to run for re-election. 39% of local elected officials, and 12% of state lawmakers. The survey indicates that women and people of color serving in local offices were most likely to face abuse. 
insults, harassment, threats, or attacks targeting their families or children or mentioning their gender or race. Regarding party affiliation, Republican office holders reported a greater increase in volume of abuse than Democrats, with the report alleging that attacks within their party amid internal divisions were partly to blame for this difference. This report comes out after Senator Rick Scott, Republican of Florida, and Representatives Marjorie Taylor Greene, Republican of Georgia, and Brandon Williams, Republican of New York, have all been victims of recent swatting incidents, where someone reports a fake emergency to the police, so law enforcement goes to their homes. Thanks, Melissa. The Brennan Center for Justice brings us the left narrative spin. Trump's rise to prominence has built an endemic culture of using threats as a censorship tactic. Though this has affected people of varying ideologies, the Trump team has monopolized this strategy and aimed it viciously at liberal people and people of color. Just as legislators pass laws and courts uphold them, Trump's role seems to be to threaten his opponent into submission when he's on the verge of losing his battles. Here's the right narrative from the Washington Times. Blaming Trump is ironic coming from leftists who have been threatening and in some cases physically attacking ideas and speech they don't agree with as part of their notorious cancel culture. It's conservatives who have to watch what they say for fear of having their lives and reputations ruined because of their views on politics or religion. Until leftists learn to be more tolerant, this problem will continue. And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 30% chance that the United States drops below a 7 in the Democracy Index by 2040. Peter Navarro is sentenced to four months for contempt of Congress. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by the New York Times, Fox News, CNN, NBC, and the New York Post. Peter Navarro, who was a trade advisor to former U.S. President Donald Trump, was sentenced Thursday to four months in prison for not complying with a subpoena from the House Select Committee probing the January 6th Capitol riots. While Navarro had argued that Trump directed him not to testify under executive privilege protections, he was convicted in September on two misdemeanor counts of criminal contempt of Congress. The four-month sentencing is lower than the six months originally requested by prosecutors. The federal prosecutors also asked the court to fine Navarro $200,000, but Judge Emmett Mehta issued a $9,500 fine. After the hearing, Navarro appealed the case to the Circuit Court of Appeals with his attorneys last week, having asked the judge to pause the sentencing until the appeals process is over. Judge Mehta barred Navarro from using the executive privilege defense in the case, claiming he failed to prove that Trump had invoked it. Meanwhile, his defense attorneys maintained that Trump did invoke such privilege and argued he should only be sentenced to probation and a $100 fine. Judge Mehta didn't immediately rule on the defense's request for a pause pending the appeal. Instead, he asked for another briefing on the matter and gave Navarro one week to hand it in. Navarro is the second former Trump advisor to be convicted of contempt of Congress. Former Trump chief strategist Steve Bannon was sentenced to four months imprisonment in July 2022, though he has remained out of jail pending his appeal. Thank you, Scott. We'll start the spins with an anti-Trump narrative from The New York Times. Peter Navarro helped cause the January 6th attack on the Capitol and worked to undermine the congressional investigation into that tragic day. As a staunch Trump supporter, the former trade advisor pushed lies about the 2020 election results and then falsely claimed executive privilege protected him from testifying about the role he played on that day. Those are the criminal offenses that have led to his conviction and sentencing. 
and the pro-Trump narrative comes from InfoWars. All that can be said here is that Washington is biased against Trump and his supporters. This sentencing comes just weeks after the son of Democratic President Joe Biden did the same thing Navarro did. But of course, Hunter Biden won't face the same consequences. Even House Republicans, who had the power to charge Hunter with contempt, failed to do so. This is a sad state of affairs. And here's the nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 48% chance that Donald Trump will be jailed or incarcerated before 2030. In South Africa, a suspect is arrested for a deadly building fire. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera. SABC News. The Guardian. The Daily Mail. And Soaton Live. On Wednesday, police announced that they arrested a man in connection with a fire that killed over 70 people in an illegally occupied building in Marshalltown, central Johannesburg, last year. The blaze was one of the world's deadliest building fires in recent years. The 29-year-old man was arrested after, his conf- after he confessed his involvement to the Commission of Inquiry, according to Gauteng Provincial Police, which includes Johannesburg. The suspect will soon face trial on charges of arson, over 70 counts of murder, and 120 counts of attempted murder. The suspect, an admitted drug user whose name was not disclosed, claimed that he beat and strangled another man to death on the night of the blaze before pouring fuel over his corpse and setting it on fire. A drug dealer who lived in the building had ordered him to kill the man, he claimed. Owned by the city of Johannesburg, the five-story building was occupied by illegal landlords renting out units to homeless people. Many of what witnessed described as 200 residents believed to be illegal immigrants. Of the 76 people killed, 12 were children, and an additional 50 people were injured, according to the authorities. Many people jumped out of windows to escape the flames, with some throwing their babies and children out of windows, health officials said, and according to emergency service officials, most of the fire escapes in the building were locked or secured with chains on the night of the blaze. The building blaze was one of the deadliest fire incidents in Africa. Wine and Engelbrecht, head of private fire brigade Fire Ops South Africa, said in his testimony to the Committee of Inquiry last week. He claimed there were hundreds of other such buildings in the city or the country and called for standardized fire codes in South Africa. Thank you, Melissa. The BBC brings us narrative A. The disaster is a depressing reminder of South Africa's profound political and social problems. Since the 2000s, buildings in cities like Johannesburg have been hijacked by gangs and drug dealers, keeping homeless people in inhumane conditions, while the authorities either lack the resources or are too incompetent to do anything about it. Meanwhile, basic safety regulations are blatantly disregarded in hundreds of buildings that are left to decay. Safety and human lives are no priority in South Africa, and it's only a matter of time before another tragedy strikes. And the narrative B comes from Independent Online. The deadly fire was a tragic incident and undoubtedly serves as a wake-up call for South Africa to redouble its efforts to tackle the issue of safe housing, stop the decay of inner cities, and revitalize urban areas. Municipal authorities need to apply regulatory and legal provisions to protect human life or will be held accountable. Moreover, additional steps will be taken to prevent migrants who are legally in the country from being exploited by criminals and to regulate illegal migration. South Africa will rise to these challenges on its way to a prosperous future. 
And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 50% chance that the ANC will receive more than 50% of the vote in the 2024 South African general election. It is a nightmare trying to escape out a chained fire escape or something like that. That's exactly what I was going to say. What a shame that that all the fire escapes were locked up. What I'm inferring from the story is that someone in charge of that building thinks it's so dangerous outside we have to chain up the fire exits because Mm. otherwise bad people will come in, right? Is that kind of what we're what we're feeling? Kind of, but it sounded more like neglect because it sounded like the landlords were, were illegally housing mm. um, homeless people or immigrants. So right. yeah, a lot of a lot of uh, crossed wires. Alabama scheduled for its first execution by nitrogen gas. Here are the facts. As agreed upon by BBC News, PBS NewsHour, The New York Times, and CBS. Kenneth Eugene Smith, an Alabama death row inmate who in 1989 was convicted of murdering Elizabeth Sennett, is scheduled to become the first person in the U.S. to be executed using nitrogen gas after his last-minute appeals failed. Alabama previously attempted to execute Smith by lethal injection in 2022, the method used in the majority of U.S. executions but called the execution off after issues injecting him delayed the procedure. Officials were concerned they wouldn't complete the execution before Smith's death warrant expired. After the U.S. Supreme Court and a lower appeals court rejected Smith's appeals, the execution was scheduled for Thursday, but Smith's lawyers, who call the use of nitrogen gas cruel and unusual punishment, say they're planning one more appeal. Breathing nitrogen gas is anticipated to cause Smith to lose consciousness before a lack of oxygen leads to his death. But his lawyers have accused Alabama of using him as a test subject for a method that is only approved as an alternative to lethal injections by two other states, Oklahoma and Mississippi. The Alabama Attorney General's office says that when Smith previously made a case against lethal injection, he, as required by law, requested an alternate method and picked nitrogen gas. Those were the facts, and here are the narrative spins, starting with a right narrative from Fox News. There's no precedent for stopping Smith, a convicted murderer, from being executed in this manner. The Eighth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution doesn't guarantee an inmate a painless death. Beyond that, Smith, who has exhausted all of his appeals, hasn't proved that using nitrogen gas would be inhumane because it's actually the most painless and humane method available. And the left narrative spin comes from CNN. This method of execution has never been tested, and there's no precedent for ending someone's life in this manner. The state can't prove there won't be unconstitutional suffering accompanying the nitrogen gas method, and elements of its printed plan are redacted. There are too many troubling issues with this execution for it to be allowed to proceed. And here's the nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 50% chance that the U.S. police-to-prison spending ratio will be 1.8 in 2030. I was seeing as I was researching another story uh, that they use this to put animals to sleep. Is that right? Yeah. Apparently, it's only used for pigs. A new report says that climate change is to blame for the Amazon rainforest drought. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The Hindu, The New York Times, Axios, and The Guardian. In a report released on Wednesday, the World Weather Attribution announced that the historic drought in the Amazon rainforest in 2023 was caused primarily by climate change and not the El Nino weather pattern. The International Group of Scientists determined 
that climate change increased the likelihood of drought by 30 times. The dry conditions affected all nine Amazon rainforest countries by drying up rivers, killing endangered species, and disrupting the critical delivery of supplies to isolated communities. Data showed that the deforestation of the rainforest contributed to a decrease in precipitation that caused a cascading effect of reduced moisture retention in the soil, resulting in trees being more vulnerable to wildfire events. Before the report's release, experts believed the drought conditions were largely caused by the El Nino weather pattern because El Nino traditionally brings about drier-than-average conditions. Data gathered between June and November showed that increased temperatures led to much greater levels of evaporation that had a significant impact. In addition to the degrading of environmental conditions, the drought had lasting impacts on Amazonian communities, leaving them with water shortages, reduced crop yields, and reduced production from hydroelectric facilities. Regina Rodriguez, a professor at the Federal University of Santa Catarina, and a contributor to the World Weather Attribution, said, the Amazon could make or break our fight against climate change. She went on to say, if we protect the forest, it will continue to act as the world's largest land-based carbon sink. Thanks, Melissa. Narrative A comes from BBC News. The Amazon rainforest serves as the lungs of our planet. A healthy Amazon equals a healthy world. Human-caused damage is destroying the forest's ability to keep a lid on global temperatures. Fortunately, this new data doesn't appear to be the tipping point, but we are close to an extremely serious situation. If drastic changes aren't made soon, there will be no way to turn back. And here's Narrative B from the Sustainable Review. Governments with equities in the Amazon rainforest have shown tremendous commitment to saving such a precious resource. During the first quarter of 2023, data shows that deforestation had been reduced by 40%. While the gains are immense and will have a significant impact on the planet and the communities of the Amazon, we must not become complacent. Nations must remain vigilant and continue the fight to uphold and establish new restrictions to restore the Amazon to the great beauty it once was. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 50% chance that wildfires will destroy a total exceeding 10 million hectares of global tree cover in any year by the end of 2030. Our final story, the UK to loan back the Asante's crown jewels. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the British Museum, BBC News, Sahara Reporters, and The Independent. The British Museum and the Victoria and Albert Museum, or V&A, announced that a total of 32 items are being returned to the current Asante monarch. Otumfuo Osei Tutu II on a three-year loan deal following their seizure by British troops in what is now Ghana in the 19th century. According to a press release, the agreement is the culmination of nine months of negotiation, following an official visit by the Asantehene to London in May 2023. The items will be loaned to the Manchia Palace Museum and exhibited to mark Tutu II's Silver Jubilee, the 150th anniversary of the Anglo-Asante War and the centenary of Asantehene Prempa I's return from exile. The statement continues that the objects are of cultural, historical, and spiritual significance to the Asante people, as well as being a symbol of British colonial history in West Africa. The deal, which contains an option to extend the loan by a further three years, sees 17 items leaving the V&A and 15 leaving the British Museum. 
The items include 13 pieces of Asante Royal Regalia acquired by the VNA at auction in 1874 following a raid on and destruction of the Royal Asante Royal Palace, as well as items of regalia held by the British Museum associated with Asentahane's Koki Kakari and Prempa One, following looting directly from the palace in Kumasi. The loan works around current UK legislation that bans disputed cultural objects from being returned to their country of origin. Nana Aforiati Aim, a special advisor to Ghana's Minister of Culture, stated that the loan was a good starting point with the return of part of the soul of the nation. Those were the facts, and here are the narrative spins, beginning with Narrative A from The Telegraph. Any deal between Asante royalty and the UK will have inevitably required the Ghanaian community to accept the legality of the British Museum and VNA's possession of its treasures. With Greece, Nigeria, and Ethiopia amongst those vocally demanding the reparation of items of cultural significance, there is certainly hope that this agreement may provide a foundation for further deals, allowing artifacts to temporarily return to their original homes. Narrative B from The Guardian. Museums that often cry theft as a consequence of mismanagement and poor security are the very same institutions that hypocritically refuse to return the product of the UK's colonial past back to its rightful owner. Westminster must change the 1963 British Museum Act, the legislation that prohibits the permanent return of objects that the UK should, in reality, be embarrassed to possess. Items looted and stolen as a consequence of history of conquest and oppression should no longer be arrogantly paraded within British territory. Do you like a, a good museum, or is that a museum boring to you? Where do you come in on a museum trip? Oh, it just depends on the museum. I love a good modern art museum. Okay, I, the, yeah. I would uh, When I lived in D.C., I would go to the Hirshhorn on a regular basis and just swirl around and see what kind of incredible art they had going on. And the exhibits would change frequently enough that it was just always really fascinating. What I find to be a super flex is when an art museum has like a really famous picture and they just kind of put it out and they just like put it wherever, you know, right, like it's like it's in not, the hallway. You, yeah. <laughs> you know, like if you go to the Louvre, the Mona Lisa is in a room all by itself. It's this giant room. Right. Like, you know, it's the Mona Lisa room and then, you know, good for them. But yeah. it's pretty cool when, you know, starry nights just leaning up against a, a radiator. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Verity Podcast for Friday, January 26, 2024. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. To find out more about Verity, visit our website, verity.news. You can also download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Verity. <laughs> <laughs>